0: The Friday Reporter launched in March of 2021 as a conversation with today's journalists and has expanded to include newsmakers, lawmakers, image makers, and just about anybody who's in the news or the news adjacent business. The podcast is in partnership with PR Daily and is part of the Big Wig Podcast Network. If you like the show, please hit the subscribe button to make sure you've got ready access to the latest conversation. And if you've got an idea for a great guest, Don't forget to send your ideas to lisa at fridayreporter.com.
1: Well, hello, and thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Friday Reporter podcast. Uh, And welcome to 2024. This episode will air uh, at the beginning of the new year, just in time for the 2024 election season. And I'm excited because today's episode is with my friend and colleague, sterling marchand who is not only partner at baker bots which is a law firm here in town and probably globally they're all over i'm sure but sterling can tell me all about that but he also is the host of this super cool new podcast called the lawful influence podcast where he talks about um campaign finance and the laws how to keep yourself out of trouble or maybe give you some more tips about how to uh, stay on the right track so sterling thanks so much for being with me today
2: well, Lisa, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to come and talk with you about one of my favorite topics, which is you know sort of the intersection of of law and and politics and communications. Um, and I really appreciate it.
1: So, before we get into the show, which is really fun, you've been very clever with even your your he- your headlines for the show are really fun. It's my favorite is the uh, uh, it's a wonderful what is it twenty five to life or what. One- <laughs> Fantastic. Very creative. Love, love it. Uh, I'll make I'm going to sure. run out of ideas eventually, but for now,
2: I'm going to no, keep doing it. They're
1: so good. But it's like now you've, you've set the bar and now you have to keep meeting it. Talk to me a little bit, though, before we get there about how you came to be in this space. Like, Talk to me about the journey. What was what was how your career got started and how you got to be where you are now?
2: Yeah, so um, I. You know, with, grew, grew up in California, went to undergrad at Berkeley, um, always had an interest in politics, but never really envisioned being in politics and moved out to D.C. about 20 years ago um, and landed a job on the Hill and and loved it. Just loved working in the policy space. Um, and during that time, working on a committee staff, there were a lot of changes to the ethics rules, a lot of different things happening, new rules being passed um, in response to scandals that happened at the time. And, uh, you know, the, the committee needed someone to be sort of the expert on, you know, advising staff on how to comply. And, and it, for some reason, fell to me. Um, so I became really familiar during my time on the Hill with ethics rules and, and how to, to keep people in compliance. Um, and then there came a point in my career where I, you know, went to law school at night became an attorney and and transitioned into private practice. Um, and the bulk of my work, you know, for the past 12 or 13 years has been focused on litigation and commercial environmental litigation. Um, but when I came to Baker bots, uh, we have a number of clients who sort of needed advising on compliance with ethics rules and, and different aspects uh, that I happen to be familiar with from my time on the Hill. So I continued, you know, advising clients on that. And so, over the past 10, 15 years, it's just been something that I've been growing in terms of, um, you know, it's it's less litigation, which I like. It's more compliance and keeping you out of trouble to begin with. Um, and just, you know, all different aspects of of ways to communicate with government officials or the public and to keep yourself doing it legally and lawfully. Um, and so from that, over the last few years, just exploring ways to to continue to um, communicate that to the public, you know, came up with the idea of a podcast. Um, I've always enjoyed listening to podcasts and, um, you know, it's a little daunting, I think, to think about getting into one, but um, it's been a lot of fun and 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 hopefully something we'll continue to do for the next few years.
1: It's, uh, to me, it's the most fun to listen to, to how you're offering it too, because you really speak to what can be a very complex issue in really a very straightforward kind of way. And I I suspect that that's probably how you advise clients and and others on this issue too, because it really is the contours of it have changed so much and they continue to evolve and change that if you don't have that deep historical set of knowledge and then an understanding of how it's evolved and what is important now, um, it really can be challenging. I know so many journalists, so many friends of mine, so many folks that have been guests on the show will be thrilled to be now listening and subscribing to what you're doing because it is the kind of information that does really require some, um, you know, historical understanding, right? And also to make sure that they're telling the story the right way.
2: Yeah. And it's, you know, in, in, in this part of my practice, it's interesting because I've you know, I, I still communicate a lot with lawyers and other attorneys in terms of giving them advice. But I find that more and more I'm talking to the government relations folks. I'm talking to public relations communicators, um, and it's a different audience. And I think one of the biggest hurdles I face when I first start talking to them is I know I'm a lawyer. I know you've had experience with lawyers in the past. And and what you've probably you know are used to when you go to a lawyer is hearing no. You know, this is why you shouldn't do X, Y and Z. And my goal has always been, you know, to be creative in getting to yes and to be able to really understand what the client wants to do and to be able to give them that yes with the appropriate guardrails so that you can go and do your job, you know, and communicate to the public as you need to, but you know where there might be gray areas or where there might be areas that that, that might cause problems down the road. And as long as you go into it with open eyes and with the appropriate guardrails in place, you should be okay. And that's really my goal, you know, as a lawyer and an advocate for a client is to be able to get them to do what they want to do, but just to do it lawfully.
1: Yeah. And that's I mean, I think that that is so true. You've just described every interaction the communications team has with the legal team on a regular basis on Capitol Hill and all around Washington, D.C., is that we expect that when we bring it to the legal team they're going to probably find a way to let us know that what we've come up with is creative and cute, but also no, the answer no. <laughs> um, is no. Sometimes there's a good reason for that. Oh, I'll no, be no, honest. I'm, <laughs> I'm grateful for my friends that are, that are there to to help me sort of stay on track and to stay out of trouble. Um, that's, and that's the kind of thing that I think, um, especially in, In the business that you're in, so much of that has really come to light over the course of the last few years because the contours of uh, the way the law works uh, as it relates to campaign finance really is a little bit of a creative space, right? There are a lot of interpretations and a lot of ways that you can um, find a path to be able to do what you want to do is there something to you that sticks out um perhaps something you've talked about on the show that you think would be um that is most interesting that something you're going to be paying attention to this year as we get into the presidential season
2: yeah so i think in the area of campaign finance and and lobbying generally you know we've seen a renewed focus on enforcement over the last few years there's been a lot of you know headlines of of various public officials that have you know misused or misstated what they intended to do with campaign finance um, donations and they've gotten into trouble for it. And so I think you know most of the clients I work with, you know, all of the clients I work with want to do the right thing, right They sure. want to they want to be able to raise money and to contribute to donors um, and they recognize that you know under the right disclosure regime, that's all allowable. Um, I think where it gets tricky is you know the second you move out of the federal rules, you start dealing with states. Each state has different rules in terms of what's allowable. Um, and so you really have to be mindful of what it is you're doing and and tracking all of those different requirements and then just, just recognizing that because it is a disclosure regime, anything you do, um, the public is going to know about. And so you have to be conscious of that and knowing that if you contribute to a certain person, you know, that that can all be analyzed even years down the road um and we saw that over the last few election cycles where in the aftermath of certain events um people were taking a closer look at are we going to be supporting certain candidates are they are they consistent with the message that our company wants to present from a public face um so from a campaign finance perspective i think that's going to be you know a continued focus is just making sure that you're complying um with all the rules and the regulations but also being mindful of you know, twenty four is shaping up to be um, as interesting as divisive, whatever you know adjective we want to use, um, as the previous few election cycles. And so the question will be how how do how do donations look like, mm. you know, in the twenty four election when it comes to corporate packs and 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 the type of packs that I typically work with. Mm-hmm.
1: And so there are a couple of different kinds of packs, right? And so, because I have a couple questions, because there are things that I don't understand quite enough, uh, we won't get too deep because I'm a communicator, so I sort of tend to hover high above sort of the deep, deep stuff. Um, talk to me a little bit about uh, sort of the different packs that there are. Everybody's hearing the words "super pack," and then they hear "leadership pack." Will you give me a little bit of a, if you can, just a short one-on-one on what the differences are?
2: Yeah, um, the leadership packs are really a way for um, members of Congress to give money to others, to others that they want to help elect, um, as opposed to their own what are called candidate committees uh, that that they're raising for themselves and to be able to help support themselves. Super PACs are in, are in a whole nother bucket, and it was. Um, Um, You know, they arose out of the Citizens United decision a few now, almost 10, 15 years ago now. Mm -hmm. Um, And what what basically that that Supreme Court decision found was that um, spending money is a form of political speech and and political speech is protected by the First Amendment. And so companies, um, corporations should be allowed to engage in a certain amount of political speech. And what it meant was that as long as the expenditures are independent from a candidate, um, a corporation can basically spend unlimited amount of money on that political speech. And so we moved out of of an era where, um, you know, the FEC was setting campaign limits, um, sorry, contribution limits Mm -hmm. on the amount of money that you could spend um, and, and into an era where wealthy individuals or corporations could spend literally unlimited amounts of money. And so there's been a lot of focus on on super PACs over the last few years because that is where the bulk of the spending now is in elections. Um, It still is required to be disclosed. And so you can see who is spending how much and what they're spending it on. Um, But it it has that unlimited nature. uh, And so you can see the influence in that area increasing.
1: Oh, that's interesting. And that's really like an and like I said. Listen to Sterling's show just for no other reason, because he talks in real plain English for people like me to understand. The other question I have is, you know, so there's a lot of retirements. There's a lot of people that are leaving the Congress this year. And that's not abnormal. I mean, maybe more so because of the sort of the contentious nature of of things in the world. What happens to a leadership pack after someone leaves the Congress? Can they continue to spend? They obviously can continue to play ball in politics to some degree um, but talk to me about that money after someone leaves Congress or after they leave public office, not federal office.
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know that I've um, I don't know that I've ever looked at that particular issue. I mean, I would say generally when it comes to um, the use of of PAC funds in any sort of scenario, when the PAC is winding up or the candidate is retired, the candidate is retiring, Usually, um, they they spend the money retiring debt or, you know, things like that. And then they will start transferring it to other committees and sort of making, you know, last efforts to, to spend down the money so that they get to, you know, eventually zero.
1: Mm-hmm. OK, that's interesting because there is there's a lot there's some folks that are leaving this year that have uh, or have just left at the end of last year. Um, that have quite a bit of a, a war chest, sort of mast. and that's sort of interesting to see how that will play out. I think that that's probably another thread that the journalists that that I follow and that you follow uh, will be looking at too, in terms of how they're playing long after having leaving, having left office.
2: Yeah, and there were a lot of there were a lot of interesting issues over the last couple of years. You had different um, candidates that were sort of half in, half out, and not fully declared, and so they were able to raise money under state rules, which again are different. And so they were able to, to amass a lot more money under state rules. And then when they formally announced their federal campaign, they were able to transfer it all over um, or transfer it into a super PAC that while independent, and I'm using air quotes there, uh-huh. you know, it's it, super PAC support, typically support particular candidates. And so um, there are there are ways for those super PACs then to use sort of the unlimited resources and support of a particular candidate mm-hmm. Um, and so there were a lot of issues and a lot of articles over the last few years written about that as we had candidates deciding, when are we going to get into the race? Cause once you make that official announcement, it triggers, you know, all the registration requirements with the FEC. And so it, it behooved them to stay out cause they were able to raise the money without sort of being covered by the federal rules at that point.
1: Well, that's interesting. And so much every year. And for somebody like you, that's a student of this, um, particular study, uh, what are you looking at now in 24? Are there new trends? Are there any new sort of directions that you see people going in that perhaps is new and different, or maybe just an extension of what you've seen previously?
2: Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, I'll say it's election adjacent, mm-hmm. but it is, it's very interesting to me. And we've seen it in the last couple of years. I expect that there will be more focus on this in the future. Um, and that is, you know, targeting speech. For defamation type claims or for misrepresentation, misleading type claims, um, there was I think just last week Rudy Giuliani, you know, got a verdict in the Georgia case for 150, almost 150 million dollars yeah. for some claims that he made during the previous election, um, and that sounds like a very extreme case, and it is. Um, I think most of your listeners will not be in that sort of situation, but. Mm-hmm. You know one of the things we're seeing is is um, with the with the renewed focus on ESG, you know, renewable um, renewables, sustainability, those types of things, um, there's legal actions being brought around those statements. And so for communicators who want to advocate for their brand, for their company, and to be able to make statements publicly, um, there are there are you know act, you know state AGs or even private actors that are bringing claims under, you know, false advertising or consumer protection, uh, targeting companies for the statements they're making. And so, again, it goes back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago. Um, You know, communicators often don't want to bring lawyers into the room. But, you know, having a second set of eyes and to be able to say, can we substantiate everything we're saying about our products? Is it truly 100% recyclable, recycled material, whatever the statement is? um you know being able to say yes we do have the facts to back that up will help protect the company down the road um if they're going to be making those statements and in today's world it's not you know we we work with a lot of clients where we are reviewing statements before they go out um for for industries that are more vulnerable to this mm-hmm. um but but we live in a world where on you know x twitter whatever it's called um <laughs> this is like you the know, third you can... <laughs> episode
1: where we've had this back and forth what do we call it mr musk <laughs> thanks for confusing the, the us. the
2: website formerly known <laughs> as twitter it is um, still
1: twitter though when you search for it it comes up as yeah. twitter anyway that's a whole other thing i am, i will always
2: call it twitter probably Same. um and and um You know, you have you have sort of the instant response, right, where you're not always going to run things through legal. And there's this very real time dialogue in the the public arena, which is great. And it's amazing to see. um, But it it carries very real world legal implications down the road, um, especially when you get into sort of how you talk about products. And so we've seen in the legal industry a rise in these in these types of cases over the last few years. Um, you know, targeting companies and targeting, um, you know, the statements that they're making about their products and whether or not they're true. And even if it ultimately is true, you can spend a lot of time sort of litigating that, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So
1: what's interesting too, is as we turned into, um, I guess it was the beginning of 23 or maybe it was even twenty two. That was really a big piece of of where we thought that um, Congress and the oversight committees were going. Right, they were really going to be targeting and looking at this ESG, which is basically, a, I mean, companies for so many years, long before you and I were even crawling around on the planet, um, were making choices and making decisions because of who their brand is and who their reputation is and what was what were the values of the company that they uh, that they were. And they are, um, and there was a real focus at the very beginning of this cycle, as members were coming in at the beginning of last year uh, to focus in on that, how to help uh, get companies prepared for that kind of attack that potentially could come and the l- recent headlines i've been re- 've been seeing and, and you can tell me this better than anyone else, it feels as if uh, yes, that felt like an existential threat at the beginning of twenty three but now as we're turning the corner and going into election season companies are starting to realize that maybe number 1 maybe they don't really care quite as much they're willing to stand on that set of values and principles that they believe in um what's what are you seeing from from your side of things
2: I think that's right i mean i think it's i think it's companies are caught in a between a rock and a hard place i mean yeah. you have you know sort of at it, for public companies you have sometimes activists shareholders who are going to come in and push for certain language and and certain viewpoints to be expressed um and then you're caught between regulators or the government and and kind of pushing back on things um and and each company has their own like you said their own sets of values and 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 have to make decisions on where they draw lines in the sand and we've seen companies take positions that put you know not just public backlash but government backlash and so um I I, I I we've seen a shift from federal oversight or federal enforcement more to the states and it's you know the beauty of our country right is this this you know you've got 50 different states each one can be an incubator for their own laws and their own decisions and um you know that that's that can be really beneficial. It can also cause a lot of compliance issues because what works on the West Coast may not work in the Midwest and may not work in the Southeast. And so, um, you know, I think companies have got to figure out a way to navigate that. And you've got states that are really getting out far in front on a lot of the ESG issues and are mandating certain disclosures. You've got, you know, greenhouse gas reporting. Um, that is in, in a handful of states right now, and and the federal government is is looking at it from the securities perspective. That was something we covered in in twenty two, and we expect those rules to be pushed out. You know, the Securities Exchange Commission requiring companies to disclose um, their carbon footprint, and um, you're getting you're getting like creative, you know, creative ways that the laws are are forcing companies to sort of identify these things and. All of those, right, carry just this huge amount of legal risk. Because anytime you're going out and saying our carbon footprint is X and we're going to reduce it by Y percent, the second you don't meet that, someone's going to come along and sue you for it. And so that's um, our goal is to help you stay out of that. Right. And to say caveat, back it up, whatever you can do. Um, But it's really I think it's really interesting. So,
1: no, it really is. And I think, too, it's actually. Typically, they are candidates and campaigns that have to be that are held to a certain standard, and it feels as if this sort of brought corporate America also into sort of this defending your points of view in a way that, that we typically have not seen in the past. Um, so while you're also a partner at Baker Botts and you're doing all kinds of other neat things there in terms of helping people like me understand campaign finance reform and campaign finance in general, you also have some really cool hobbies and other things that keep you very, very busy in life. Um, so before I let you go, as we turn the corner on a new year, and um, it's important for people to continue to be giving back, uh, I want you to tell me this remarkable story that I already know that my listeners may or may not, that you and your uh, spouse, who uh, many people know and appreciate and love too on this, um, from this show, you created this remarkable nonprofit. Called "Be the Good," yeah, and I want you to tell me just a little bit about it. Um, even though I know, and and we're all volunteers in my home, tell me the story, if you will.
2: Thank you. So, um, um, four of my hobbies are my kids. Well, four. I have four. I have four, <laughs> <laughs> I have four young kids, um, and and um, it, at at the start of the pandemic, you know, as as everyone experienced, like we all, you know, everything shut down. We were forced to you know to work from home, school from home, everything. Um and you know in those early days like you were can I go to the grocery store like it was like this really you remember it was this really weird time mm-hmm. um and it was for young kids like we have you know it was scary and they didn't really understand like what was going on and and how long it was going to last um and so we we started you know talking in our house about looking for the good and and trying to to see like well we all get to be home together we all get to spend more time together. Um, and then we started reading stories about you know school-aged kids who, because school had been out, you know, were not getting access to the free and reduced lunches that they were you know accustomed to, um, and you know for breakfast and lunch, and and how you know different um, different schools or different agencies were trying to meet that need, and and we reached out to some different groups, and because of the pandemic, you know, a lot of the typical ways that we could have volunteered were shut down and they weren't really allowing people to come in. And so um, we felt God put on our heart, you know, it was like, you know, this is something you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to go ask someone else you're supposed to do this. And so we started relatively simply, we put a box in our front yard and we just asked our neighbors, you know, donate to this food drive and we're going to give it to um, a local organization. And it was, you know, both an opportunity to do something about it, but also to have conversations with our kids. Like, yes, this is a a dark time, but we can, you know, make the best of it and find ways to help others. Um, and that was in the summer of, of 2020. And, uh, within a week, I mean, we just had, the box was overflowing and there was more donations coming in. And, um, I think people were really craving a way to give back at that point. And so, um, since then it's now three plus years, um, God has really just multiplied it beyond our wildest dreams. And it's, you know, it's grown into um, sandwich, a sandwich program where volunteers make sandwiches. And we've delivered um, over 125,000 sandwiches over the last few years that get distributed to the homeless. Um, We have a network of um, what we call little free food pantries uh, that are like little free libraries, but they're planted um, at, at schools around the area, and they get stocked on a weekly basis, so that folks in the community can grab food as they need it. You know, anonymously, twenty four seven. And we have a network of twenty seven of those now um, across the area. And then, and then the last big program we have are care packages. Um, and we just got through the winter care package season. Um, we've been in the process of delivering almost a thousand care packages through schools, and um, and each one has you know about. 20 to 30 pounds of food and a gift card um, and just a little something extra to help families over the holidays. And um, what's been remarkable is, you know, it's, it's, I always get lost in the numbers and, and, you know, sort of the vastness of it. Um, and, it, it, you know, we get feedback from, you know, an individual family who says, you know, thank you, because this box, you know, is going to help our family, you know, immensely. And so, you um, it's all built you know amber my wife and i you know we we sort of run the organization but it's really built on volunteers we certainly could not do it without the hundreds or thousands of volunteers like you and your family and others that that contribute um but it it does make a real impact and so we you know we we say that like even one sandwich can make a difference um and we really believe that but it's been a good opportunity for us to it's an it's an entry point for conversation with our kids to talk mm-hmm. about you know what it means to um, to be grateful for what we have, but also ways that we can look to help other people. So,
1: well, I love it, and I, I I cannot in my in my wildest dreams I could not have predicted how far and wide this would have grown. But it is remarkable, and it really is just so. It's be the good project. So for anyone who's looking for that, also make sure that's in the show notes. A remarkable way kids, families, adults, seniors you name it. People, I've seen people from all different parts of the Northern Virginia region get involved and get just a tremendous amount of satisfaction just from this tremendous project that you and Amber have built. So I'm super proud of that for you. and grateful that I get a chance to even just have a small piece of that um, that we can help contribute. So as we get to the end of our conversation, here we are 30 minutes. Can you believe it? It's always this like the fastest podcast so fast. ever. Um, <laughs> I'm going to ask you for always, as I do, to keep my list running. Who should I talk to next for the
2: show? So. I knew this question was coming and I, 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 so I wanted to be prepared. And I was, I was joking with my wife, Amber, this morning. I said, you know, the person that I love talking to the most is my wife. So I would always recommend you talk to her. Um, But she pointed out that's, that's, you know, maybe not the best answer, but um, what one podcast I started listening to recently, it's new um, is a podcast um, by Brian Athey um, and it's called um, the, I want to make sure I get this right, the creative podcast. Um, and um, it you know, he's in brand and marketing, and so he has different creative folks on just to talk about sort of brand management and rolling out new brands and just all aspects creative. And you know, um, as a lawyer, we don't, you know, it, it's not, you know, stereotypically not creative people, but really as I reflect on some of you know the parts of my job that I love the most, it is the creativity and it's mm-hmm. being able to come up with inventive ways to say yes, or to be able to help out clients. Um, and, a, and a lot of it is storytelling, right? For lack of a better word, it's, it's presenting your case and your argument to, you know, the government or a jury or the public or whatever it is. And so, um, I, I've been in I, there's, I think, two episodes out now, but it's a really interesting podcast just to listen to and get um, and just to hear other creative types um, in a different industry from mine. But but, you know, more adjacent to yours and and just hearing about it. So I love it. I, I'd, I I'd saw that him. he
1: launched this show, so I'm going to get him uh yeah. and, and and full disclosure he's one he's one of the one of the many uh that were on the team with myself and with Amber and how we all became to be such good friends so i'm going to be happy to have him and help him promote his show too uh sterling this was so fun I, I really enjoyed our conversation and I wish you continued success, not only with this remarkable new show that you've got and in your legal side of the world, but also in the nonprofit and uh, good luck. Have a wonderful holiday season. Like I said, this episode will air first thing in 24. Uh, so I suspect your phone will start ringing with all my journalist friends who pay attention to the show because I think there's a lot of questions that are going to come up this year as we head into the presidential.
2: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I could talk for another half hour with you. So I had a great time. (laughs) That's usually the way it
1: goes. (laughs) Thank you.
0: There you have it. Another episode of the Friday Reporter Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. I love having this show. I love you to be part of it. Thanks again. Thanks to PR Daily for being a partner. And thanks to the folks at Big Wig Podcast for letting us be part of their network. See you soon.